Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Oh, hey. <laughs> How are we doing, everybody? My name's Charlie. If we haven't met yet, I would love to meet you after this. If you want to say hi, we are here this morning, like every week, to acknowledge that we need to be realigned from the world outside of this place by the word of God, by his presence and by his person, by his goodness and by his beauty. And so we're going to open the scriptures today, and we're going to talk about what God says to us. And today we're going to talk all about this idea of how do we know if we've really seen God? And, and before we do that, if you're new to CBC, if you're watching online, we start by simply acknowledging that our value system of Jesus flies in the face of the value system of the world around us. We live in a culture that is so incredibly critical. Sometimes we miss what God is doing in our midst because it doesn't look like us. That's today. And so we start with this quote that I love, the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. And we begin by just aligning our hearts and we're going to say a quick prayer that, that the Spirit will speak to our spirit because he's present and he's, and he's near and he's here. We're going to pray that God might show you more of his goodness and beauty today and then show you how to live into that throughout your week. I'm going to ask that you pray for me because just to be honest and selfish, it's really difficult to be critical of somebody you're praying for, all right? <laughs> that you might see the goodness of God in our text this morning. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here. To, to remember what's truly worthy of my worship, what's truly worthy of my following, what's truly worthy of that which I can center my life around, my loves. So as we open the scripture today, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Show us where you're acting and calling and challenging and encouraging us as we follow Jesus together this morning. If you're comfortable, I'd love that you just took a few seconds and said a quiet prayer and just speak to the Holy Spirit. Speak to God and ask God to reveal himself to you today. And that's the prayer for me, that I might adequately show what God looks like this morning through his text. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. We're in Matthew chapter 11, if you want to get a head start on us. If you know me at all, or you've been here for a while, you've probably heard me talk about, I have this proclivity towards bad Christian TV, especially Sunday afternoons. I don't know why, I think I'm pretty exhausted, and I just want to turn on something and deep in my heart judge it. I really do. And I yell at the TV, and there's just one show, I won't say the name of it, but it, it just really is all about these people that come in and they say, I've seen God. And it's a little charismatic, and they have these dramatizations of the stories, these reenactments, and guys, it is awful, right? 
Like, it's this backlit, white, resplendent-looking Jesus all the time, you know? And, and I look at this show every time, and I wonder sometimes how different these people's recollection of God is. And it brings up a fundamental question, how do we know when we've seen God? As a culture and society, sometimes we can look at things and see two completely different things. For example, in 2015, there was this image that took the world by storm. You guys remember this? You go to Wikipedia, and it's just called The Dress. Some of you saw blue and gold. Some of you saw white and gold. Everybody was mad and wrong at the same time, you know? There's an interesting uh, stat by the Innocent Project. They would say that one of the fundamental flaws we have in our justice system is the idea of eyewitness accounts. They say mistaken eyewitness indications contribute to approximately 69% of the more than 375 wrongful convictions in the United States overturned by post-conviction DNA evidence. I can give more stats and more quotes on that, but what the science and the data tells us is that more often than not, we think we saw something, but we really didn't see something in the first place. My question this morning is, you have these two groups of people that say they saw God. How do they know? You have these disciples that are following Jesus and they're sacrificing for Jesus. You have all these other people in these cities we're going to look at today that said, I saw God too, but they have two very different experiences of the Jesus they said they saw. How do we know when we've seen Jesus? And by seeing, I mean, how do we know when we've experienced a moment with God? What are the signs? Is it just I saw something cool or is it deeper? So that's where our text picks up in Matthew 11. It starts by saying, to what should I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to one another, we played the flute for you, yet you did not dance. We wailed in the morning, yet you did not weep. What Jesus is doing here, he just got off of this tangent on how John the Baptist is great, really great, the best prophet that's ever been because he was the closest prophet to Jesus. And in our last text, Jesus defines greatness by proximity to God, which is a really great definition of greatness, if you want to use one. And so he says, John was really great. And then he moves into this section and says, but you've denied John and you've denied me. That word compare there in the original language is used when Jesus kicks off a, 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 a story or a parable. So what he's taking is a common occurrence in the first century world, and he's saying, you're like these people. And so he uses the marketplace. The marketplace was the center of their lives, and he talks about games children used to play. So you would mourn at funerals, and you would dance uh, when you were celebrating, and Jesus looks at this generation and he said, I have asked you to mourn with me. I've asked you to be joyful with me and you have not done either of those things. You didn't, or you weren't joyful and you didn't weep. And what he's referring to is the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. They were very different people. In Matthew 3, if you know anything about John the Baptist, it describes John as wearing garments of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. John was a really, really straightforward, kind of when you look at it, joyless life kind of man at the expense of his love for Jesus. Do you know these people? I know these people. They're not wrong. They just have a different personality temperament. I went to college at Wheaton College, and there was a resident evangelist. I'm more of a when things, get, get, when things get awkward, I make jokes. He's more of a when things get awkward, we just get more serious. So he said, hey, Charlie, do you, you want to go to lunch? I said, yeah, let's go get lunch, man. It'd be great. So we're getting in his car. He said, hey, Charlie, where's your sword? And I said, I don't carry one of those. And he said, no, your Bible. I said, well, you should have said that. Um, and I realized that we had two different temperaments in this moment. 
And then we get to the restaurant and the waiter comes up and says, hey, do you guys want anything to drink? And he says, do you know Jesus as, as your Lord and Savior? Have you repented? And I said, he did not ask that question. <laughs> Things were getting awkward. We realized we had two different temperaments. After that, we started emailing back and forth and I always signed my emails. This is immature, but funny to me. I always signed my emails, constantly sheathing my sword, Charlie. <laughs> we don't talk anymore. Um... <laughs> My point is simply when Jesus is describing John, what he's saying is there's this serious guy that came and he told you to repent and he told you God is coming and he told you God's not happy with you. He told you God's going to deliver you. And you said that can't be of God. If you look at the next verse in verse 18, he says that can't be of God. That is from a demon. But then he continues and he says, when you look at me, the son of man came eating and drinking. For they say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunk and a friend of tax collectors. So when Jesus came, it was a different iteration of what it means to follow of the kingdom of God. John came with hell and fire and brimstone and truth. And Jesus came with a little more love and a little more grace. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He broke some of the ritual laws that people thought Jesus followers, God followers, would never break. One of my favorite stories is in John 5. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. Sabbath was the covenant stipulation of the Israelite people. When God gave the covenant to Moses, which is what they lived by and lived under, the sign of that covenant was the Sabbath. Big deal. And Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees said, how dare you heal somebody on Sabbath? The only person that can work today is God. And Jesus said, I know. <laughs> and, and they were like, uh... <laughs> And so what Jesus did was break some of these traditions that were held by people that said they were followers of God, and that made them very, very, very uncomfortable. What I love about how this text starts is Jesus says, I've come this way to show you God. I've come this way to show you God. You're denying God all around you because he doesn't look like you. What I think is really important in this text, it's a little side note, but it's a good one, is we have to understand how much and the great lengths God goes to to pursue you. We think that we come to God. We think that God sits and waits. And if we're good, if we hear, we run to God. Do you, do you understand how much God has run to you? There's whole books of your Old Testament that are simply devoted to God's undeniable and unfathomable love for you. There's one where he says a prophet basically married a prostitute and the whole story is about how he just kept on faithfully pursuing this person who cheated on him. We're the cheaters, God's the pursuer. The amount, of what, the amount of love that God has for us is seen in the fact that he always, always, always runs towards us far more than we run towards him. We have to understand that that motivates our idea and understanding of his vast love for us. Guys, it's soccer update time, okay? If you're new, I coach a three-year-old girl soccer team. It is interesting, and each week I give highlights so you can laugh with me. This is my therapy. This week, we had a game at noon. And um, man, you know what's a hard time for three-year-old kids? Noon. And so we get to the soccer field, and I get there, and we have seven girls on the team. Four girls play at a time. I use play loosely. Four girls play at a time. I get an email right as the game starts. This one mom said, my daughter's been weeping for an hour saying she doesn't want to go. I shouldn't force her. And I was like, then what's your definition of parenting? Anyway, so... <clears throat> So she said she's not going to make it. And because it's noon, and it's kind of when they get really tired and they need to wind down, I had three of the girls looking before the game and say, I don't want to play soccer today. <laughs> I'm saying, well, you don't have a choice. Um, 
My daughter was laying on the side saying, I'm tired. I don't want to be here. And so what I had to do is literally come up, like grab them by the hands, run over to the sidelines, say, let's go play together and hold their hands and run down the field with them all the time. I want you to know two things from that. One, I'm an amazing soccer coach. We won seven to two. Uh, I'm really not very good at all. Uh, Two, I think it's an apt description of we think that we're doing a lot of the work when we pursue God, but do you have any idea how much God has done to pursue you? He sent John. He said, you rejected John. He said, I'm here and I have a little different spin on the kingdom of God to show you another facet of the grace of God and the love of God and the compassion of God, not just for you people, but for all people. So I eat with people that you don't think should be called the people of God and you missed it all the time. And you said that John was of Satan and you said that I am a drunk and I am a collaborator, a collaborator with sinners. You've completely missed my enormous love for you by missing my pursuit of you. And so some people this morning just need to hear that God is running after you much harder than you've ran after God because he loves you that much. And so Jesus says, you guys have completely missed it. The first thing we need to know is that God is moving towards us. Do we see that all the time? Even when we feel like he's not. And so then the pursuit in, in verse 18 says, you've missed me, you've missed me, you've missed me. If you keep going to the text so far, they didn't love and they didn't see the goodness of Jesus because they didn't follow, didn't want to follow a God that didn't look like them. It's been kind of the theme in the last chapter. It's people missed God because they looked for God in the mirror and nowhere else. They missed God because they thought this is the only way I can be delivered. It's interesting if you dive into any kind of study on confirmation bias, on how we see the things that that basically show us that our view of the world is right. And anything that challenges our view of the world, we don't think is right anymore. There's one writer that said, when reality crash clashes with our deepest convictions, we'd rather recalibrate reality than amend our worldview. I watched an interview two weeks ago with um, a Ukrainian man, and his father was in Russia. And he said, Dad you guys are bombing us. And the dad in Russia said, no, we're not. And he said, dad, I'm living in it. And the father said, yeah, that's just not true. You're lying to me. And the son said, I promise you, you are at war with us. And he said, there's no way that can be true. You're lying to me, right? And the son just said, I'm going to keep trying. It's amazing what we will believe if it shapes and if it supports what we want to believe. Sometimes we miss God in those moments. You got to understand that Jesus came to a group of oppressed Israelites and says that your way is to push back but to pray for, read the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you want to know what an uprising looks like? It looks like loving those who are persecuting you. And they did not want to hear it. They had no space for it. They thought there's no way this is the deliverance that, that God told me that I'm going to get. This cannot be the Messiah because they looked in the mirror and nowhere else to see the deliverance didn't look like what they wanted it to look like. I love what N.T. Wright says. He says about Israel in the first century, like everybody else, they'd been reading the Bible through the wrong end of the telescope. They'd been seeing it as a long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering, but it was instead the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. So oftentimes we miss seeing God in moments because we have to look beyond or past our expectations of what deliverance might look like. A friend of mine this week had a pretty bad medical diagnosis, and he's in the middle of it right now, and it's hard. 
I was talking to his wife, and they don't know what the answers are going to be yet. <laughs> and he just, she said to me, she said, he looked at me and he said, I'm at peace because God is good. See, God has had my days numbered, and that's what I trust in, in the middle of it. It reminds me of what Tim Keller says about prayer, one of my favorite quotes. God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. They miss God because God didn't look like what they wanted him to, and that sounds all too familiar to me. And then he has this next verse. It's kind of the crux of our passage. It says, but wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So he's talking about John and Jesus, and then all of a sudden he throws in this idea about wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And you're probably thinking, how does that make sense in this passage? This isn't Proverbs 1. Well, what Jesus is doing is talking about a literal way of life. Wisdom, as I like to define it, is knowing what to do and when to do it because you know who's in control of it. That's what Proverbs 1 kind of tells us. It begins with the fear of the Lord, and then you know what to do and when to do it because you know that God is good, big, and majestic. So when it talks about wisdom in the Old, Old Testament, what a first century Jew would have heard when he heard wisdom wasn't just you made the right decisions good for you. Wisdom was an attribute of God that God used to create and form and shape the world around us. It was this, in some ways, this invisible force. That's why Proverbs talks about lady wisdom calling out to mankind. It was this invisible force, if you will, that humans could tap into that literally represented the attributes of God with which he created the world. What that means to us is it's a way of living that God designed to run straight through how humans should live to bring about the best kind of life, human flourishing. Wisdom is the principles of God laid out in the world we live in to bring about the best possible life. Forgiveness over hatred, love over war, worship rightly. And so when he talks about wisdom being vindicated by her deeds, what he's saying in this text, what they're saying is that you have chosen a deliverance that goes against what God's wisdom is. I love what Constable says about wisdom. Wisdom is God's fixed order for life, an order opposed to chaos and death. So there's this moment when he says, you've missed me and you've missed John and you've missed the kingdom of God. And he says, let me tell you what it's going to do. It's going to go against your best good. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And you know what I love about this text? Is that seemingly is still true today. The ways of Jesus are a better way to live. That's it. So we have a podcast called A Better Way. We have one season done, one's coming out, just to talk about how the ways of Jesus aren't just good for you to get into heaven. The ways of Jesus are how God designed flourishing to look like in a world that oftentimes fails us. I threw out some stats last week, but we've seen it. Christianity Today last year had an article, and it was called uh, the, um, the, the Christian Empty Pew Pandemic. It, it, it basically talks about how there's a health crisis in this country because less and less people are following Jesus and going to church. And it's throughout numbers. It says that if you follow Jesus and you make regular church attendance, I think that's just their way to say follow Jesus, part of your life. It says there's an 84% re uh, reduced risk of suicide. These are data points, they're not opinions. 29% reduced risk of depression, 50% reduced risk of divorce, 33% reduced risk of adolescent illegal drug use, 12% reduced risk of adolescent depression. There's a Harvard study that came out, and it suggested that church attendance could add up to seven years to your life. But you know what? The ways of Jesus, the way that God calls us to live, leads to a better life. I can get into it in a dozen different ways. My favorite example is simply Sabbath having a conversation with a friend about it, the idea that God built Sabbath into how we're supposed to work because if we don't, one teacher I follow says, if you don't take Sabbath, be careful because Sabbath will take you 
mean your life be too chaotic and too out of control. You will burn out. You will have mental health crises. You will be in a worse place than if you took time to let go of the world and recognize it's not yours to control in the first place. And so Jesus is juxtaposing the deliverer they wanted with the deliverer he was, and they're saying, you missed it. And let me tell you, the cost of that is that your wisdom that you chose will not be vindicated by your deeds, but mine will. And then he gets into some examples. Keep going. He says, Jesus began to criticize openly the cities in which he had done many of his miracles. And what he's doing here is he's going to lay out some cities. We're going to talk about why he picked those cities in just a second. But, but he starts to criticize these cities in which he did most of his miracles. This is a turning point in the Gospels for us. Up until this point, Jesus is really popular. Do you know why he's popular? He healed people. He gave them lunch and breakfast. He walked on water. He did some pretty amazing things. And in a world without Netflix, that's what you watch, you know? And so Jesus is doing this amazing thing and he has this really big followership, but then he's going to start to turn the screws and say, if you really want to see me, if you really want to follow me, it's going to have to be deeper than you just show up and applaud when I do cool stuff. It's a deeper level of commitment. What he's going to start to do from here on out in his gospels, which is going to drive people away, is say that I require more than just fans of my work, but followers of my lifestyle. And that's really one of the cruxes of the New Testament scriptures, is that We love a God that says, don't be anxious about tomorrow, I've got you covered. We love a God that says, hey, here's a a new commandment. Love one another as as I've loved you and your neighbor as yourself. We love a God that says, hey, do unto others like you want them to do unto you. Health and wealth sells. We love a God that's for us. We don't love a God that says, hey, you can't serve me and money at the same time. We don't love a God that says, hey, taxation's not a terrible thing, do it. We don't love a God that says, if you want all of me, sell everything you own and come back and show me that I'm your best good. We don't love that God near as much. What Jesus does in this moment is he says, hey, you can't just be a fan of me. I want you to be followers of me. And that's difficult because it asks far more of me to be a follower of Jesus. The problem is, and especially us, we live in a culture that likes being a fan of things, but Jesus saying, hey, it's, it's not just that simple. You can't just be a fan of what I do. Following me changes who you are and how you make decisions. And so he says, woe to these cities. You've chosen a different way of wisdom, way to do life. And then this is what he gets to next. Here's why woe to you. Because they didn't repent. And what we get at in this moment is this idea that if we really see God, do you know what the byproduct of that is? Repentance. Like what Bonhoeffer says, he says, repentance is the ultimate honesty. The Christian who has stopped repenting has stopped growing. Matthew Henry says, wherever God designs to give life, he gives repentance. I think he's looking at these people and he's saying, hey, look, here's how you know you've really seen me. Not just your version. Here's how you know you've really seen me as you're willing to say that's a better way and change for it. How do we know if we've seen God? It leads to repentance. We love to admire God from afar. We love to go to churches with platforms. We love to feel good about our life. But the real way to admire God is to admonish the things in our life that don't admire him. Jesus says, woe to these cities because they saw my works, but it didn't change who they were. And make no mistake about it, that's what God is after. (laughs) He wants to change who we are becoming because he's designed life to be more filling than we can find other places. 
And in verse 20, when he says, because they didn't repent, I think what's profound in this text is the expectation for Israel was that they were going to be delivered from other people, but repentance is all about God delivering you from you. That's much, much harder. It's much, much harder for us to recognize that we need to change our ways. We're part of the problem, not the solution. And so he looks at these people that are following him and he looks at these people that just see his miracles and don't see who he really is and he says, you've missed it because you did not repent. The truth of the gospel doesn't simply correspond or confirm our reality. Our reality. It transforms, transforms and reshapes our reality through repentance. That's why we say at the beginning of every message, the move of the Spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. You want to know if you've seen God? Repentance is the true sign that you've truly seen God. In little ways and in big ways. And so what he's going to do next in our text, he's going to throw some cities out there. Um, he says, woe to you, uh, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, the miracle's done in between you and done. If they'd been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on those two cities on the day of judgment than for you. So let's unpack that a little bit. He gets a little practical. So first thing he says, woe to you. That word woe there, I think Jesus talks about hell often. I think he doesn't shy from that topic. I don't think this is one of those topics. So when he says woe to you, it's not a condemnation or judgment. I think what it is, it's more of a, a cautious disposition of I'm concerned for where this leads for you. He's not damning them to hell. He's saying, if you don't change, you will find yourself in hell. And there are very different implications for those two things. I read a lot of blogs and a lot of pastors that have had a lot of burnout in the last year and a half, two years in COVID, because it's become more difficult to do this job. And they'll tell me, if you don't take time for yourself, you will not make it. Woe to you who work seven days a week and, and pretend like you can fix the world's problems. So it comes from a place of caution and concern for his people. And then he continues on and he says, you, Capernaum, will be exalted to heaven. No, you'll be thrown down to Hades. So he says, woe to you. This is the end. Hades in the New Testament, especially in Matthew, Hades isn't what Matthew uses for hell. It's what he uses to mean simply destruction, death, end of. He doesn't compare it to Gehenna, which is what he uses for hell. He compares it to Hades, which is the Greek idea of death. So what he's saying is, woe to you cities. You've missed me. Let me tell you that leads your end and not in a good way. It ends in your destruction. And so a couple ways you'd hear this if you're a first century Jewish person. Um, there's three cities he mentions there, right? Trizim, Bethsaida, and Copernicum. And they're all centered on this one region on the south of Galilee. And they're all centered around this one mountain called Mount Arable. I think we have a picture of it. Um, that's it. And so what you could do is you could stand on this mountain and you could see the three major cities that he lists right here. And you got to ask the question, why does Jesus pick these three cities? He'd been active in more. Yes. I think he picks these three cities because the Mount Arbel there that you see that kind of drew these cities together was the headquarters of the zealous movement that rebelled against the Roman Empire. There are stories of battles fought about 40 years before Jesus where they hold up in the caves and you can walk through the caves now and see where they made shop. And they'd battle, and when Rome would come and walk by, they'd descend down from the cliffs in this mountain, and they would attack, and they would try to fight back and get back what they thought was rightfully theirs. I think Jesus picks three, these three cities because it's, the it's the recruiting hub for the zealot movement against the Roman Empire. I think he's saying, woe to you. If you fight like you think you need to fight, you're going to end up losing in ways you didn't think you'd lose. 
So culturally, in the first century world, I think they would have heard these three cities and thought, well, this is our uprising movement. This is the headquarters of our military action against Rome. And, and Jesus says, woe to you. That is not the right application of wisdom for you. Don't fight like that. He says, woe to you when you do these things. You've missed what deliverance looks like from John and from me. And then he continues and he, he takes these cities and he compares them to other cities in the region, all Gentile, by the way. If you're a Jewish person, you, you believe that you're better than the Gentiles, so that would have been really hard for you. And he ends by essentially saying, if you think it was going to be hard for you on the day of judgment, it's going to be harder for you than it would be for Sodom and Gomorrah, which stood for like the, the, the beacon of wickedness in the Old Testament. And what I think he means there is not that there's different levels of judgment in hell. This is kind of a systematic theology conversation on what hell looks like. So I, I don't think there's worse hells for different people, by the way. I think hell, by definition, is bad because it's the absence of God, and that's the worst bad there is. When the scriptures talks about different degrees of heaven or different degrees of hell, which it does, I think it talks about the degree to which we understand and know what we either have or what we've missed with or without the presence of God. So there's a couple different examples in the scriptures it gives of people that have a worse suffering experience. And, and I think it's because they have a greater understanding of what they let go of. So he looks at these people and he says, you've missed my deliverance and it's going to be harder for you when you're judged because you knew I was right there. It's kind of like, it's March Madness time. It's one of my favorite times of the basketball or the sports year. And there's been one of my favorite parts of March Madness is everybody's. It's like the buzzer beater shot where the, the Cinderella seed beats the juggernaut. We can all root for the little guys. And as a short person, it's magical for me, you know? And it would be like, look, at the end of the day, if your team loses, everybody loses. But the guy who took the shot at the end of the buzzer and missed it feels worse than the others because he had the chance to change it. I think what he's saying to these cities is, man, I'm right here in front of you. I'm right here. And one day when you realize that you missed me, you're going to feel way worse than anybody else because you're going to say, how many opportunities did I have to repent? How many times did I see Jesus and not change who I was because I didn't see the goodness of who he is? This warning passage about if you really see God, you really dive into repentance, this change because God is better than us. This recognition that his ways are better than our ways. That's what it looks like to encounter God, to really see him. And, and he's talking to this group of people saying, I did all of these works right here in front of you, don't miss it. And, and I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if maybe we're in the same boat, you know? Because let me tell you something, we have more access to Jesus than anybody in the history of the world. And I'm not being hyperbolic. If you're a member of this church, you have a Right Now Media account, which is the Netflix for Jesus. There are 20,000 studies on there, right? On my way driving to this place, it's 3.8 miles. I passed seven churches, and they're good churches. They're not bad churches. If you said, hey, Charlie, I go to this church, I'd say, awesome, good for you, go with God. Maybe not if you're here right now. You know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> I think sometimes we forget how privileged we are to see Jesus all the time. I think sometimes we take for granted the grace of God to allow us to see the beauty of God in everyday life. I think Jesus is saying, if you really see my beauty, it calls you to repent. To lay down your ways and recognize that his are better. 
Yesterday we had a, a men's breakfast and it was really good and Lloyd Warren got up and talked and he talked about our idea of what work is and how there's no sacred uh, secular divide, but all places that Jesus followers go are sacred because God goes with us, because God is there. And he just called people to say, whatever your work is, are we doing it in a way that reflects the gospel? And he walked through a couple passages and says, are you doing it purely and honestly? Are you doing it lovingly? Are you doing it worshipfully? And so what repentance isn't it all the time, it's not always like I weep on the ground because of God's majesty and my littleness. Sometimes repentance is just saying, man, I'm not as pure as I want to be in my workplace. Sometimes it's saying, man, I'm not as loving to my wife as I should be in little ways. Sometimes it's saying, I get really angry when my three-year-old refuses to play soccer and maybe I shouldn't. Repentance isn't necessarily a life-altering thing, but a lot of repentance will change your life towards the life of Jesus. And so as a church, how this applies to us, because I don't think you know, we're one of the cities saying woe to, I think it's a bigger picture of saying, this is what it looks like to see God as followers of Jesus. It looks like repentance. And the question simply becomes, where is God asking us to change because we've seen him? With all these people saying, I've seen God, I'm going to say, I believe you, how is it changing you? If you can look at God and say, I've seen you, but it doesn't change who you are, I'm going to challenge whether you've actually seen the goodness of God in the first place. It's a beautiful picture of how God is changing us as a people. We really see God when we really see his ways over ours when we repent. And so simple application this week, where is God asking you to find repentance because you found God? Where is he pushing back and saying, hey, this isn't my way and you know it? Where is he calling us to live into the better ways of Jesus? On Thursday night, this last week, I went to a, uh, a gala in Denton. I know it seems oxymoronical, but I went to a gala in, sorry, <laughs> I went to a gala in Denton for a women's, that's a low shot of Denton, I'm so sorry, I love Denton. Um, I went to a gala in Denton for a women's advocacy group, and it was fantastic. And they had a speaker up there about women that have been sold into um, just sex slaves. And this woman got up there and she said, you know, I, I absolutely didn't know what I didn't know and I didn't know how to get out of it. And then I found this place and I found Jesus. And she got up there and said, and he radically changed who I was. I got up there and, and she said, I, I went to this home and they introduced me to the ways of Jesus, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the love of God. And it caused me to utterly change what I thought was good towards what Jesus said was good. I don't live like I did then. I don't live like I did then. I don't want to live like I did then because God's ways are better. It's a story of repentance. And in the room, we all cheered and cried and laughed and said, God is good. Because let me tell you something. If you really want people to see God, they need to see how he's changed your life. And that starts with repentance. I love what one of my favorite writers, uh, Kierkegaard, says. He says, God does not create of nothing. Wonderful, you say. Yes, to be sure. But he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. Repentance is a sign that we've truly seen God. And when people see that, they'll see the beauty of Jesus and the goodness of God too. Might we be a people that see God? And might it change us? Let me pray. God, I'm thankful, man, that you you love us enough to call us to change. 
as you walked with your disciples and said, this is what it looks like to really see who I am, to believe in what I'm doing. It looks like repentance. God, give us a heart for repentance. Give us a humility to say, I'm not my own God and I'm not always right and my ways aren't the best ways. God, show us where we need to lay down our wants and desires for your better will for our life. Show us where we need to repent. And in doing that, might we not do it because it makes you happy or because there's some merit system that life will be better? Might we do that so that others around us see the beauty of Jesus? So that they can see what we've seen in Christ, a God who truly saves. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.